Amen. Good morning. Yeah, God's Word is so faithful, isn't it, to uh, change us and to keep changing us until that day when we will be with Him face to face, and we won't just have to depend on the written Word. We get to live with the living Word. Well, before we turn to uh, God's ancient words and allow Him to continue to change our hearts, I want to do a couple things this morning. Uh, one is the health of any local church is really dependent upon the, uh, well, each one of you who just uh, plug in and serve in the way that God has uniquely gifted you and given you a heart to serve and abilities and life experiences and in uh, all of those different dynamics. Uh, that is always the health of the church. And uh, I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who serve. Um, there are sometimes uh, God puts a calling upon our life at certain seasons of life to, to uh, exercise in a leadership position uh, over other people. And uh, this morning I want to take a few moments and recognize Karen Lundberg and uh, for her ministry to our ladies for many years. And so Karen, on behalf of all of us... <laughs> Certainly on behalf of me and our elders and, well, everybody that just clapped. We want to thank you for your leadership over our ladies, for caring about the Lord and His work in their lives, and not just our ladies, but ladies beyond these ladies, and the way that you've made such an impact upon them. And I know you're not done making an impact, but I do want to thank you for your years of leading our women's ministry. There's a little gift for you. I have no idea what it is, but some ladies picked it out. You don't want me picking out gifts. That's part of the beauty of the diversity. But I do want to pray for you, and we want to pray for you. So let's pray. Father, how we bless you and thank you for Karen and uh, the marvelous way in which you brought her into a relationship with you and, and Dale and their family. And uh, Lord, I'm just grateful for your ongoing care and shepherding of Karen in the loss of Dale. And uh, I want to thank you for her heart uh, to shepherd her own daughters and their families and her other family beyond that and to continue to shepherd and lead people here and in her neighborhood. And so, Spirit of the living God, would you just continue to open her eyes to see even more marvelous beauties about who you are and, and what it is that you would want her to be instilling into the lives and the hearts of those that are around her. I want to just bless you and thank you for this beautiful daughter of yours and for the way that you have so used her here and the way you're going to continue to use her. We bless you and we thank you. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. We love I want to say thank you and thanks be to God. And also to all the women who served with me because it couldn't have happened without all of you. So thank you all. Amen. 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 Uh, the next thing I want to do is uh, tell you a little bit about next Sunday because we're encouraging all of us to invite people to come that don't know Christ or they're not engaged in a church. And you may be wondering, uh, so what am I getting myself into because I got to sit next to them? <laughs> and uh, that's actually a very healthy exercise is to bring people and to sit with them. And it's amazing how all of a sudden you move from from being kind of self-absorbed to, oh, no, how, 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 how is this working in their own hearts and lives and stuff like that? So let me, just, let me just tell you what we're going to do next week. I mean, much of what we do and have already done will happen next week. And then when we get to this point in the service, I'm going to have Dave and Angela Couch come up here, and we're going to sit on the platform here. And I'm really going to interview them about, uh, you know, where they were uh, before they, God intersected their lives, how God intersected their lives, how God has changed them, 
And then actually we're going to interact over the gospel some, and that's really the way uh, we'll share the gospel through their lives. And, uh, and then we've got some folks that are going to follow the Lord in baptism, so that will be further declarations and bragging about who God is uh, in the baptistry, which means that if you need to follow the Lord in baptism or if you are discipling somebody who is at that point, man, get a hold of me or one of our pastors today <clears throat> or tomorrow so that we can be well prepared for that. <clears throat> so that's what will happen next Sunday, and then uh, C.K. Burgers is going to be here, and uh, we will eat out on the patio and stuff after the service is over. And uh, we're going to try to do exactly what we're told to do in First Peter, just brag about the excellencies of God, who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Amen? And uh, so, uh, anyway, that's what's going on next Sunday. And just would encourage you. You might be wondering, well, should I invite them or not? I'll just tell you how I've landed this one. I always invite, and if it could be helpful in their lives, God will get them here. If it's not the best, God won't get them here. I've realized I'm not smart enough to figure out whether things are good because I I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't exactly know how Nixon is going to play out, although we put some effort into it. But guess who does? The Lord does, and the Spirit does, and He's up to a good work. And so just invite, 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 and trust the Spirit to, to sort all that stuff out that you and I are not smart enough, nor wise enough, nor powerful enough to sort out. What do you think about that? Amen? Amen. All right, grab something that has the Scriptures on it, electronic or, um, or paper, or if you're like a young man that we're going to interview, Mike's going to interview him here in a week or two, Everett, you can just quote this probably from memory. He won a national Bible thing yesterday. And uh, so anyway, I, it's just crazy. So anyway, that's more about that later. So what I'm saying is if you don't need something electronic or paper, it's in your brain, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. So... Uh, Man, I wish I had more of it. You watch something like that and you think, wow, what a sloth I've been. <laughs> so anyway, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and uh, we're, we're jumping back into verses 4 through 10 again, and uh, you might remember that uh, this is kind of the phrase that captures this whole book, that those who know the Lord Jesus Christ are residing as aliens in this world. And we are chosen by God. And that's, that kind of creates the sense of, of who we are uh, as we live in this world. And so you might have someone say, do you believe in aliens? And now you know how to answer it, right? You say, yes, you're looking at one. You're looking at one. By God's choosing, that's who I am. And so this creates all kinds of things. And so, so far in uh, 1 Peter, we've walked through what God did, how God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son ganged up on us to bring us into a relationship with Him. And, and we've walked through what that looks like in our relationship with Him to a large de- degree, just focusing upon that. And then the end of chapter 1 focused upon our relationship to other believers who are also chosen by God, and that went right into chapter 2. And then in in verse 4 of chapter 2, he begins to talk about some of the challenges and how to walk as aliens in this world. And in verses 4 through 10, he's really dealing with how we see ourselves and how we understand the conflict and the tension that we experience from those who are not Christians. Now, he's going to get into then how we behave, beginning in verse 11 and through the rest of the book. And so he's going to say, you work for an ungodly boss, here's how you behave. Oh, you're married to an unbeliever, here's how you behave. And so he's going to walk through a lot of those relationships. Well, right now we're talking about how do we view ourselves and how do we understand the conflict that happens because... We are followers of Jesus Christ living in this world. 
Last week, we emphasized our identity, and we're going to pick up on that a little bit more this morning, but we emphasized our identity, which he, which he runs through in verses 4 and 5, and then in verses 9 and 10. And it's important to know who we are, because when you're called all kinds of names, and when you fail, you sin. It's important to remember who we are because of who God is and His work in our lives. And so, we wrapped up last Sunday by making this declaration, which simply takes these identifying terms in this passage and and makes them our declaration. And I thought it'd be good for us again to read that this morning. So, let's read it together. As followers of Jesus... We are living stones, being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Stop there for a minute, okay? What's your response to that? Wow, amen, hallelujah. That's not the way I saw myself this morning as I was trying to get the kids going or get my own body going. That's more real, right? That's more real. And, and to the extent that you wrestle with this and you have a hard time remembering this, take some of this and write it up on your mirror. Put it on your dashboard. It's important to know our identity. Now, if that's not enough of a wow moment, he goes on and says, oh, by the way, just remember who you used to be. And so let's read that last part. We once were not a people, now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And again, what do you say to that? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Man, God, it's a miracle what you can do in my life what you have done and what you will do. So, this morning we're going to go into those middle verses in verses 6 through 8, which again is going to pick up on the identity a little bit, adding a further identity actually to who Jesus is, and then it's really going to deal, and this is what I want to emphasize this morning, how do we understand the way we're treated because we are followers of Jesus Christ? And so with that in mind, why don't you stand with me, please, now that you're all comfortable. And let's read verses 4 through 10. Verses 4 through 10. This is the word of the living God, that ancient word that changes me and changes you. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Spirit of the living God, would you use these words to further build us up as your spiritual household for your name's sake. And it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, jump into verse 6 there, and uh, Peter is going to go back into the Old Testament here. He already told us 
uh, in the first chapter that those prophets who, uh, verse 10 of chapter 1, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So Peter believes strongly in the Old Testament Scriptures in proclaiming Christ. And now he's going to recite some of those Old Testament Scriptures for us. And so in verse 6, quoting from Isaiah 28, he quotes, "'Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone,' a precious cornerstone. And, uh, and so let me just give you a little bit of a context of the book of Isaiah, which is so applicable to the people Peter is writing to in his day that are so persecuted for their faith, and even in our day. In the book of Isaiah, what's going on is God is having to bring discipline upon His people because they refuse to build their lives upon Him. And he's going to use some very ungodly nations to bring that discipline upon his own people. And then he's going to turn around and discipline them because they do it with a bad attitude. And so in the midst of all hell breaking loose in their culture, God says, behold, pay attention to what I'm going to do. There's a lot going on around you. There's a lot of people saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. There's a lot of people saying, fix this, and it will fix your life. Do this, it will solve your nation's problems. And in the midst of that, God speaks from heaven and says, behold, pay attention to me. He says, I, I personally am going to lay in Zion, a choice stone. He says, I'm going to do something that will solve all of your misdirected attempts to fix life, to fix this world, to make it as you know it should be, where there is peace and there is kindness and there is righteousness. He says, behold, I am going to lay in Zion, in Jerusalem, a choice stone. Now, that's the same thing he said in verse 4 there, that Jesus is the choice and precious stone in the sight of God. But now he adds another identifier to who the Lord Jesus is, a precious cornerstone. Now, for most of us, we have no idea what a cornerstone is. I mean, we sang about it a lot this morning. And uh, if you've been in church very long, you probably know it. But with our building techniques today, we don't need cornerstones. Because we can take transits and we can lay out a building and, uh, and we can pour concrete and we can use GPS. I mean, we have all kinds of methodologies today that were not available for millenniums. And so if you were going to build a building before all of that technology was available, you would spend a long time picking out the cornerstone. Because the selection of the cornerstone and the placement of the cornerstone had everything to do with the rest of the building. The rest of the building would be, get their orientation from that cornerstone. The rest of the building would be built with, sever, uh, uh, with similar materials to that cornerstone. The rest of the building would get much of its stability from that cornerstone. In other words, the cornerstone gave the identity and orientation to the entire building. And so there was great effort spent in selecting the right cornerstone. And Peter uses this Old Testament quotation to say, there was a lot of effort putting it, put into who would be the cornerstone for all of the human race and all of eternity to come. And God put that effort in. 
And there was a lot of effort in laying the cornerstone exactly in the place with the orientation that it should be because all the rest of the stones get their orientation from that cornerstone. And God spent a lot of time and a lot of effort, not that he used up anything. And we're getting ready to celebrate that cornerstone being born in exactly the town that God said he would be born in. Exactly when God knew he needed to be born. And he even used a Roman ruler to get Mary and Joseph to that town. And then there's the whole growing up. There's the ministry for three and a half years where Jesus establishes the orientation, the affections, all that was required for those who would build their life upon him, and then he was crucified so that sins could be forever done away with. And as we sang earlier, so that we could be robed in the righteousness of Christ. And then he was raised from the dead so that we would not have to live in futility and in our own strength and energy, but we can experience the resurrected, resurrected power of Christ in and through our lives. Now, back in Isaiah, God says, I will lay a choice cornerstone, a precious cornerstone. And Peter was part of walking with that cornerstone and watching God lay that cornerstone. And now he's writing to dispersed believers who are horribly persecuted for their faith. And he is just reminding them, behold, look at what God has done. God has laid a cornerstone, a precious cornerstone. Remember we talked about precious is not just its value, but its uniqueness. God has laid the one and only of its kind cornerstone, the one who is fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ himself. And so God has laid that, and thus we can say very clearly, Jesus is the one and only cornerstone for life. He's precious. He is the one and only cornerstone for life. And he who believes in him, she who builds her life upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who orients their heart, affections, and choices upon him. Whew. What a beautiful person God will build that person into. What a beautiful body of believers God will make the people who will orient their lives upon he who is the cornerstone. And you probably have experienced a lot of that, haven't you? Maybe you could even say, yeah, amen. Hallelujah. It is crazy how God has reoriented my life. How he's made me a part of a, of a group of people with all their imperfections are still radically different than anything else in any place in the world. Jesus is the one and only cornerstone. Now, he moves from this identity into what we will experience then as followers of Christ. And he does that with the next part of the Old Testament scripture there and on into verse 7. And, uh, and depending on what translation you have here, there's a little bit of a variance in the translation. So, Here's uh, two of the primary translations, and there's some important nuances that I think that are helpful for us to understand how we're going to be treated as followers of Jesus Christ. As we're building our lives upon this one and only cornerstone, there's going to be some reactions and responses from the people around us who are not building their lives upon Him. And this really... Uh, uh, captures what we will experience, New American Standard, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. Now, the English Standard Version says, and whoever believes in him will not be put 
to shame, so the honor is for you who believe. And I want to I focus, they're both, they're both fully accurate, by the way. They're just different nuances of the same thing. Um, but, it, and by the way, anytime a, a Bible translates things a little bit differently, you can pick up some of the angst of the translators who tried to figure out what the best word was for that culture. But I want to focus on the ESV for just a minute because it's important for us to understand that one of the ways that groups of people, whether it's a couple or whether it's a family or whether it's a city or whether it's a culture and a nation, one of the ways that they try to get people to conform to what they believe is the right way to behave is by honor and shame. Honor and shame. And believers have been experiencing this since the beginning of time. The Pharisees tried to pull this off on Jesus and his followers. They try to honor certain people and they try to ridicule, mock, and shame people who are not conforming to what they would say is the right behavior, the behavior and thinking that they want. Let me give you, well, here's a quote from uh, a Roman historian uh, back shortly after the Lord Jesus uh, was crucified during the days of Peter, though, where he says, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. That's the way Christians were viewed. And you well know that one of the ways that unbelievers try to get believers to conform is they mock and they ridicule. They say you're hateful. They say all of those kinds of things. Let me give you an example from Asia. This one is in Laos. This comes out of the... uh, magazine, Voice of the Martyrs, their last magazine. And here's a picture of some Laotian believers in a baptism service, but let me read this. The lives of the Cobb people changed dramatically three years ago when they placed their faith in Christ. They no longer feared the gods and evil spirits that others in their small Laotian village tried to appease, and their newfound freedom was obvious to the other Hmong villagers. Soon, two other families turned to faith in Christ. Village leaders, however, were nervous about the foreign religion taking root among them. They worried that it would anger their gods, causing crops to fail or bringing other calamities on their village. After agreeing that they had to take action, the leaders demanded that the three Christian families renounce their faith. When the families refused, they were expelled from the village and forced to move into tarp tents in a rice field. When three other families witnessed their strong faith, they too placed their trust in Christ, bringing the Christian community in the rice field to a total of six families composed of 32 individuals. They are not permitted to leave the field unless a leader from another village allows them into their village." Throughout Southeast Asia, new Christians among the region's numerous tribal groups are ostracized and exiled when they turn away from the predominant animistic religion and place their faith in Christ. But God continues to use these exiles to spread the hope of the gospel. Shame and honor. Let me show you a short video here of John Lennox. I don't know whether you know that name or not, but he's a mathematician, uh, degrees from Oxford and Cambridge, as well as some university in Germany. And, uh, and he's, he's, just, uh, he's just dying a lot of writing. He's debated most of the predominant atheists in the world, and if you want to watch their debates, it's a fascinating thing to watch. And, um, and so here he is, Camilla and I got to hear him at this conference a, a few weeks ago at Ravi Zacharias Ministries. If you remember the movie God is Dead, if you see the, saw the movie God is Dead, the student who couldn't answer the question the first time the professor came after him 
the second time he came back and he quotes John Lennox. And, uh, and so this is the man. And uh, we're going to jump in where he recounts an experience he had. I think he'll say in here as a 19-year-old as, uh, as he began being a student. So go ahead, David, if you want to play that. I spoke to you yesterday about my conviction that science properly understood, far from being a threat to belief in God, actually strongly supports faith in God the Creator. I spoke on it quite passionately, and I want to explain why, because it goes back to a significant event in my early student life that set a compass bearing that remains with me until today. It has to do with pressure, secular pressure, within the University of Cambridge where I was a student. I was 19 years old and I sat one evening at dinner in my college and met for the first time in my life a Nobel Prize winner and started to talk and ask questions as I usually do, played Socrates, and began to make the questions move in the direction of the God question. And I saw that the more I moved in that direction, the less comfortable he became. So I backed off, and at the end of the meal, he said he wished me to come to his room. And he invited several other distinguished senior members of the university, no other students. And as I remember it, they sat me in a chair and they stood around me. And he said, Lennox, do you want to make a career in science? Yes, sir. Well, he said, then give up this childish, naive faith in God right now in front of witnesses. Because if you hang on to your belief in God, you'll never make it. You'll suffer by comparison with your intellectual peers. So give it up. Talk about pressure. <laughs> and I recall just sitting there thinking, this is extraordinary. If you see, I'd been an atheist and he'd been a Christian trying to pressurize me into becoming an atheist, the whole university would have heard of it the next day and he'd have been out of a job. He should have said Christian. So I looked at him and I said, what have you got to offer me that is better than what I've already got? So he referred me to the philosophy of Bergson, which many of you will thankfully never have heard of. <laughs> But I knew about it because I read C.S. Lewis's comments on it. And I said, well, if that's all you've got, I'll take the risk and I'll stick with what I've got. That, that put steel into my soul and was the first really big lesson in this matter of confidence. And it will come to us all. It'll come to all of us at some point, doesn't it? And as he goes on to say, what he's learned is if you honor God, God honors you. And uh, there's a lot of you that are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and you're in that very hostile environment. And what God says here is so important. It's so important. That he who believes in him will not be put to shame. This honor then is for you who believe. Now you might say, well, that's not the way it feels. And that would certainly be true. But what the scriptures do then is very much what John Lennox did with his guys. What's the alternative? What's the alternative? 
Well, maybe I should say this first. So here's the point. He or she who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame, but are honored. It's an honor to know Christ. You were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. There was a time when you didn't know what the mercy of God was. Now you do. It's an honor. And you will not be disappointed, but you are, I am, of the most privileged people. But then he goes on and does, you know, John Lennox says, so what do you have to offer me instead? Well, Peter goes on and shows the other alternative here. Because if you're going to think about shame and honor, you've got to think beyond the moment. And here's a man who, when he was 19, took that stand, and, and he's got, I mean, he's got quite a reputation of standing for Christ. So let's look at the other alternative. What about those who don't believe? What about those people who stand around and mock and ridicule? What about those people who says, renounce this childish faith? Or what about those people that are, that are putting together websites and saying, followers of Jesus Christ belong in the hate groups? Well, the passage does go on, and it says, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, a couple things that are important to note here. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Here's something that we have to have to keep reminding ourselves. Everybody builds their life upon something. Everybody builds their life upon some belief system, and there's usually some person at the center of that. It may and often is themselves. Everybody builds their life on some cornerstone. And what it's saying here is those people who do not believe in Jesus pick something else to build their lives on. They reject Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, but here's the key part of this thing. Does that mean that Jesus is any the less the cornerstone? No. No. No matter how broad the rejection, guess what? Jesus is still the cornerstone. He's still the cornerstone. It doesn't make any difference how passionately people believe that he's not. It doesn't make any difference how much they can argue that he's not and there's a better cornerstone to build your life on. Jesus is still the cornerstone. And those, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And, and so they evaluate Jesus and they, there are things about who Jesus is and what he says and what he calls people to that they cannot stomach. They stumble over those realities. And, and this is just so obvious. Uh, Camilla, my wife, is taking a class, philosophy of religion or something it's called, at Golden West right now. She realized her world was getting kind of small and she didn't have a lot of time with people who don't believe. So nothing like taking a philosophy of religion class. <laughs> Besides that, she feels some responsibility to straighten out young teachers <laughs> and protect other students. So, <laughs> so anyway, and the kids love it because she procrastinates on her homework <laughs> and they can river like crazy when she gets on them. So anyway, there's lots of fun dynamics to this. So she was super excited because Monday they were going to go, th the, the, the subject was the Gospel of Mark. The teacher never talked about really the Gospel of Mark. He will not even consider anything miraculous. Why? Because that's a stumbling stone. That is hard to stomach. 
And so one of the students who missed class said, oh, I'm sorry I missed the uh, mark last Monday. And I think Camilla says, well, it doesn't make any difference. We never opened it up and read anything in Mark. <laughs> it, it's, it's just there. They can't stomach it. And sadly, they will experience shame and disappointment. That's what the passage goes on to say. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, Peter makes a pretty thorny theological issue right there, doesn't he? And there's different ways, two different ways to understand that, that they were appointed to stumble and disobey, or once they disobeyed, they were appointed to the doom. Um, that's a whole bigger issue, okay? Here's the point. God is sovereignly in charge. He is sovereignly working. And no matter what, shame and ridicule, even to the chopping off of a head, you will be honored. Those who take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be honored. And so... He makes it very clear of what we will experience in this world. And he makes it very clear, keep orienting your life upon Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. You may be ridiculed, you may be mocked, you may experience all kind of that, but in the big scheme and the eternal scheme, you will not experience shame. And you will not be disappointed. Now Jesus, oh, Peter, when he quotes this verse about the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. It's not the first time uh, that he has used this. Um, Stephen already stole one of my verses there. But go over to Mark chapter 12 real quick. It says Luke in your bulletin, but that's because I put the wrong thing there. Go over to Mark chapter 12. Because I'm sure Peter probably remembered this experience as he was there with Jesus. Um, Mark chapter 12. It, things have really heated up. Jesus has made his triumphal entry. And, and I mean, things are, are at a uh, fervor of hatred towards Jesus. Yes, it will get worse as he's betrayed and crucified in just a couple of days. Uh, and by the way... Crucifixion was the most shameful way that a person could be put to death. But Jesus tells this parable in verses in chapter 12. Let me just let me just talk you through it, and then we'll jump in when he quotes it down there. But he says, uh, "Listen, people of Israel, you're like a vineyard that God has planted." And man, he put a wall around you to protect you. He put a vine press right in the middle because you are to be a fruitful people and enjoy the abundance that I give to you. And that's what I created you to be. And at harvest time, uh, when I was expecting some fruit from you, I would send people to you. I would send someone to you. And verse 3, and they you would take him and you would beat him and you would send him away empty-handed. So I'd send another one and they'd wound him and, and treat him shamefully. And so I'd send another one and they killed him. And so they kept beating others and, and killing them. Verse 6, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, 
And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So Jesus used this same scripture to point out to the people that were so hateful to him of what God's plan was in saying, you can reject him, but he's still the cornerstone. And this is marvelous in God's eyes. Peter did use it, as Stephen used it earlier in the service, uh, when he and John were on trial there. And he's standing in front of those religious elite people. Many of them had probably heard this. And he quotes this same passage and goes on to say, but there's no other name given among men whereby you can be saved, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that they looked at him, Peter and John, and says, these are uneducated men. Uneducated. Ever heard anybody sling something at you about being uneducated or stupid because of your belief in Jesus? It's not new. But they'd been with Jesus. And God used that to continue to build his church. And so they will experience shame and disappointment. Now, let's just pull all this together. What's the upside concerning the number and intensity of those who reject Jesus as the cornerstone? Whether it was in the book of Isaiah when this was quoted, whether it was in the life of Jesus that we just read, or whether it was in Peter's day or for us today. Here's three, three realities. Here's the upside of the whole thing. Number one, it doesn't limit in any way God's plan to make Jesus the very cornerstone for each and every person who believes. All the resistance from every single person and hell itself does not stop Jesus from being the cornerstone. The gates of hell can't and won't prevail. Number two, it gives those of us who now know the Lord Jesus an opportunity to see what a precious honor it is to believe. It's a precious honor to know I once was not a part of the people of God, but now I am. In the midst of so many who reject and mock, why am I not part of them anymore? What an honor to be able to orient my life upon Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone. Amen? I mean, that is such an honor when the multitudes are mocking and ridiculing Him. What a special privilege to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, why keep emphasizing the future of those who reject him? Why keep emphasizing that? Why does Jesus emphasize it to the people that day? Why did Peter bring it up with the religious leaders? Was it to look down their nose in pride? No, I don't think so. Certainly there was a sense of the privilege that they had. But there was a sense of grief for the doom that people will experience if they do not make Jesus Christ their cornerstone. And it keeps getting raised so that people would recognize their true condition and their need to make Jesus as their cornerstone. It's like someone standing in the middle of the road, waving and trying to flag down cars that are headed down the road because they know there's a huge sinkhole up there that if they drive on by it, they're going to fall into it and be forever dead. And so they're standing out there waving because they don't want people to experience that. And yet some people are going to come up upon them and say, they're higher than a kite on some kind of drug. I'm staying away from them. And guess what happens to them? And there's others who say, maybe they're up to something to help me. And they listen 
and are saved. That's the reason this is continually brought up, not to look down our nose, not to be arrogant and hateful, but to grieve for their condition and their ultimate doom unless they put their faith and trust in Christ even as I did, even as you did. Warren Worsby gives a beautiful picture here. He says, every time someone trusts Christ, another stone is quarried out of the pit of sin and submitted by grace into the building. Isn't that a great picture? And his expertise is the hardest, most belligerent people. Some of you were them, right? I was one of them. And praise be to God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus is the cornerstone. Thank you for whatever you've done in our hearts and lives to bring that reality to bear and to bring us to a place where we would orient our entire lives upon him and his word. And, and man, we just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, help us to have a broken heart towards those who are so adversarial. Help us to have a broken heart over those who mock and ridicule Jesus and his followers because he's such a stumbling block to them. And God, would you do in their lives what you have done in our lives? And would you reorient their entire life would you bring them to repentance and cause them to be a part of the spiritual house that you're building up, that holy priesthood? And Lord, to that end, help us to advertise and proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's in the name of Christ that we experience all this, and thus we say, amen. Let's stand.